Hello, and welcome to Six Sad World. I'm Jasmine. And I'm Mari. This episode is going to be um, a little bit out of order. Um, I know I was I went first last week, yep. um, but I kind of was the driving force behind this one, and my my case is very heavy, and it I is. didn't want it to be the ending uh, to this episode, so we're switching it up a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no real positive spin to this theme. Um, yeah. As just as a kind of warning, um, we were, like, trying to figure out how to, like, end the episode with, I was like, Jasmine, you can do. Uh, I and then we literally now. just sat there, <laughs> just like, uh... I'll try, but I'm gonna be honest, I mean, I guess this is a spoiler, but it's not necessarily positive either, but it's not as lengthy or... Um, it's probably not as terrible because I I literally picked the worst. Yeah. Nah. Well, I feel like there's probably worse that out we know there, of. but maybe we don't know about yeah. it. So this is like the worst that at least that I could find. Um, and this is kind of a a pretty well known one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also sorry we're late about the episode, but I started a job and Jasmine's starting school, and we're not being paid for this. Yeah, so, so you're just going to have to deal with the fact that sometimes we can't make time, even when we want to. Yeah. But we're trying, you know. Um, it also was just really hard to do the research for this case, and you'll see why. Yes. Um, so this episode that we are talking about um, is, this is an episode for the missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people, um, and LGBTQ community um, in Canada. Um, so, because we are talking about this, and I haven't really done it before, um, we're gonna do a land acknowledgement. Yep. Um, so basically, we just wish to acknowledge this land, um, here in Tukuranto, and the land on which Pickering sits. I couldn't find, um, kind of any indigenous names for the area. Um, that kind of, like, overlapped with the area that we are living in, or were... Well, I'm still living there, but... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, on this land, um, which we pre- um, operate and produce this podcast, um, this land has been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, the Mississaugas of the Credit River, and the Onondaga um, nations... Uh, this territory is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the How to How I'm so sorry, How and the Ojibwe, um, and allied nations to peaceably share and care for the lands and resources around the Great Lakes. Um, we especially want to acknowledge, um, even being kind of children of immigrants. Um, we're still settlers on this land, yeah. and we want to acknowledge that we um, benefit from the colonial systems yeah. that operate on this land. Yes. Um, and we we hold that privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's really important to remember when we're talking about this. We do want to bring awareness to this issue, but it's not our stories. No. Um, we, I, I want to be clear about that. Um, so, anyways... I do have a lot to get through, so I'm just kind of jump into it. Go ahead. So, um, 
I'm going to give some context. Um, if you live in Canada, you've probably heard of the Highway of Tears and the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. Um, but if not, I'm going to fill you in. The Highway of Tears is a 700, uh, an approximately 720 kilometer stretch of Highway 16 in British Columbia. Between 1969 and 2011, it's estimated that there were over 40 unsolved murders of women and girls along that stretch of highway, mostly indigenous. Um, some of them were murdered, some of them went missing. There was just like um, a huge chunk of, of women that went missing around this time um, as well as being found murdered. In fact, it only started to get um, immediate attention when Nicole Hoare, the first white victim, went missing in 2002. Of course. So from the 60s to 2002, indigenous women, girls, and queer uh, indigenous people were going missing and nobody, like, noticed. Like, nobody thought it was a problem. Um, which, is, it was, which is a problem. <laughs> yeah, it was all kind of explained away. Oh, um, because of the marginalization of indigenous people, there's, you know, a higher rates of uh, people being sex workers, people um, being drug users, um, you know, having drinking problems um, because of colonialism and kind of the, the conditions they're forced to live in. So, you know, those things are were all used as excuses to be to not care about them, basically. So that brings me to the National Inquiry, uh, which I'm just going to call um, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Um, that was launched in late 2016 in response to concerns from Indigenous communities throughout Canada um, about the cause of violence against Indigenous women, girls, and uh, Two-Spirit and LGBTQ community and the investigations into them. Over a thousand cases nationally remain unsolved officially, but the Native Women's Association puts an es the estimate closer to 4,000 in the last 30 years. Wow. So, the case that I'm doing um, is about Robert William Picton. Um, and just to let you know, he is considered Canada's most heinous serial killer. And you'll see why and or not see you'll, you'll hear you'll, yes <laughs> um you'll hear why next um so content warning obviously this episode deals with violence against indigenous women um it also deals with violence against uh sex workers in general uh there is the desecration of victims bodies uh stigma against sex workers and drug users um and a general discussion of the of the failures on the part of the police. So, this is a very very depressing episode. Yes. Uh, actually, kind of sorry, um, but it's it's just really it's important. Uh huh. Um, and so I tried to when I was uh, writing this, uh, doing the research, I was trying to make sure that I was going to tell this in a way that put the emphasis on the victims. Um, and on why we are talking about this in the first place. Um, so on February 5th, 2002, RCMP officers raided a pig farm in Port Coquitlam, BC, which is kind of outside of Vancouver 
in British Columbia um, after a tip that a former employee had seen illegal guns in the trailer home of a man named Robert William Picton. Upon executing the search warrant, they did find several illegal guns, um, several illegal or unregistered guns, um, but they also found items that were connected to several missing women um, reported in the surrounding area. And this is um, kind of during a time where indigenous women were kind of the bulk of the missing women. Mm -hmm. Um, After Picton was arrested, a second search warrant was executed on the pig farm. During the second search, they found handcuffs, women's clothing and shoes, jewelry, and an inhaler prescribed to Serena Abbott's way, a missing woman from Vancouver. DNA testing uh, found the blood of Mona Wilson, another missing woman in a, um, that was found, so the blood was found in a motor home on the property. Uh, Robert Picton was then arrested and charged with two counts of murder on top of the illegal guns charge, um, although a total of 26 murder charges would be laid against him. Um, so, Robert Picton. I'm not going to spend too much time on Picton's past because mm. it's not really relevant. Um, it doesn't, like, excuse or explain anything, really. No. <laughs> um, but just so you have some context, he was born in 1949 and raised on a family-operated pig farm. He ran the pig farm with his brother along with a salvage company. He continued to live on the farm in a trailer home Um, and anyone who knew him kind of described him as socially awkward and exhibiting strange behaviors. Mm. Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting that in 1996, he established a federally registered charity with his brothers called Piggy's Palace Good Time Society. Interesting. Um, and he framed it as being, like, that they were supposed to be raising funds for service-oriented... I don't know. Some sort of charity? Uh, It was kind of vague the way they described it um, in what I found, but I didn't dig too much into it. Um, But it eventually got shut down in 2002 uh, due to the wildness of the parties, which which could have up to 1,700 attendees. Um, So the way that it was described and what I was reading made it seem like he basically started a fake charity in order to kind of get tax breaks Mm -hmm. um, to throw these, like, wild parties and, like, make money off of it, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So that's all I really want to talk about is past. Um, The rest of Italy isn't important. Um, But some context um, about downtown Eastside Vancouver. So, what's more relevant was um, what was happening in Vancouver. Um, as, er- as early as 1978, women have been going missing in downtown Vancouver. Um, like, there had been an increase in reports of missing women. Mm-hmm. Um, between 1978 and 2001, a total of 65 women went missing. That's a lot. Yes, it is. And I think that was, like, a 19-year span, something like that. Um, it's, like... A lot. Like, 20 years. Um, that's still, like, th- like three or four people going missing yep. a year. Yeah. Um, just, like, vanishing. Not just, like, oh, they ran away and came back. Like, they vanished. Um, these are unsolved cases. The majority of these women were sex workers, indigenous, 
um, sex workers, drug users, um, and on top of that, they were um, also, a majority of them were indigenous, although not all of them. Yeah. Um, some of the indigenous women weren't sex workers, um, but, like, a lot of the victims in general were. Uh, by 1991, the community, the um, Vancouver community organized a memorial march in order to pressure the police into investigating um, these missing women. Um, but it wouldn't be until 1998, so this is seven years after they were like, hey, hello, like it's been 10, 15 years, mm-hmm. a lot of women are going missing, can you look into it? They still didn't do anything for eight years. Um, by the time they did start uh, reviewing them in 1990. A, uh, the police would begin reviewing uh, the files of missing women going back to 1971, um, but at this point, they still said that they did not believe a serial killer was on the loose. It's a lot of women to go missing, though, and not believe something something is going on. So, if you're from Toronto, this might feel a little familiar, because this is basically what happened in Toronto yeah. when the police were like, there's no serial killer. You're all freaking out about all of these missing uh, queer brown men for, like, no reason. You're overreacting. It's totally and, random. And then they caught a serial killer. So, you know, <clears throat> just goes to show. So uh, that kind of, like, struck close to home for me because it's, like, it totally happens. Like, the police do this all the time. Mm-hmm. Um Anyway, so Picton would be connected to 26 of these cases between 1995 and 2001. There isn't enough evidence to connect him to others, but um, in one of the articles I was reading, it said that investigators had been fielding tips on this guy since 1971. Like, people were calling in to be like, this guy's kind of creepy, and he's got, like, a bunch of, like, weird shit at his place, and, um... I think he might be up to something. That's a long time for, you know, the police to be hearing about this person. And yes, they... 30 years. Yes, maybe it was all just, like, not but in the situation. He clearly was up to something, and they just let it go on for 30 years. And I'm gonna let you know exactly how badly the police fucked this up. Because mm. this is 100% the police fucked this up. Mm. So... Picton was actually uh, known to police um, regarding this, like, these cases since at least 1997. Um, So, just to let you know, kind of the next, like, minute or so, I'm going to kind of talk about a violent interaction involving knives. um, That is, it's not super detailed, but detailed enough to be a little bit icky, if that makes you uncomfortable. So, um... Skip ahead, like, two minutes if uh, you think that might make you uncomfortable. Um, on March 22nd, 1997, a woman was working as a sex worker when she was approached by Picton, who solicited who solicited her services. Uh, he drove her to his farm and took her to his trailer to have sex, but when it came time to pay, Picton refused. Instead, he came up from behind her and um, got one handcuff on her. Uh, the woman whose name is under a publication ban, I'm not just calling her the woman to be an asshole. Yep. 
um, her identities being protected, um, on purpose. Um, she struggled and ended up slashing him in the throat from, like, it said that it was from, like, ear to ear, so she, like, cut him from, like, all the way across his throat. Um, but Picton was able to get the knife from her and stabbed her in the chest all the way to the hilt. Oh, my goodness. So, and this was, like, an eight-inch knife, I think it was. It was, mm-hmm. like, a big knife. Like, it wasn't, like, a small thing. Like, I think it was, like, a hunting knife or something. Mm-hmm. Um, or, like, no, not a hunting knife. Kitchen knife? Yeah, it was, like, a, a, a certain type of kitchen knife, but They're I'm not gonna say... Yeah, it doesn't really matter. Anyways, it was a big one. Um, so they continued to... Um, so even after she got stabbed and he was slashed in the throat, they continued to struggle. Um, she managed to get out of the home... Um, and Picton collapsed outside of the trailer, and she was able to get away and, um, flag down a car. So, she was able to, like, be like, save me. Yeah. So, um, she was taken to the hospital, where she underwent emergency surgery, and then, this is the, like, like, this is how small of an area this place is. Picton was receiving treatment, treatment in an adjoining operating room. I knew you were going to say that. Oh for my his injuries. An orderly found the key to the handcuffs that were still on her in Picton's pocket. And so the orderly took it, yeah. put it in the handcuffs, was like, it fits. Um, so the hospital called the police and he was arrested for attempted murder, assault with a weapon, and forcible confinement. However... Because the woman was a drug user. Ah. And apparently she was late to some meetings with the Crown lawyers or the prosecutors. Um, The Crown didn't find her reliable and ended up staying the charges. She would not be the last or only woman uh, with a story about Picton. Um, His... It's clothes that were taken that day when he was arrested for this attempted murder. Uh-huh. Um, because he was arrested at the hospital, so he was still wearing the clothes. He was bled all over. Um, they were taken that day, and at during later t- testing, had, if they found the blood of two more women, but um, they weren't tested before that, um, before his first trial. Yeah. Like, they didn't go and test those clothing um, after they arrested him. Wait. Until they arrested him on the pig farm in 2002. So he had blood from other women prior to that incident on his clothing? On his clothing. After, when he was arrested for this attempted murder. Murder. So he, not only did he have the blood of the woman he was attempting to murder, there was blood from two other separate women. Yeah, this is not good. I'm really sorry I'm doing this to you guys. In July of 1998, uh, it was Lori Shenher's uh, second day as detective assigned to the case, um, to reviewing these um, missing women, the reports of these missing women. We were talking for, like, three hours before <laughs> we recorded, and so I'm like tired of talking already and I have so much more to get through. I'm sorry. Um, so on Laurie Shenner's uh, second day as detective on this particular case, she received a tip through Crime Stoppers 
Uh, the tip suggested that she look into Willie Picton and that he was responsible for the missing women. Uh, the tipster said that he had some kind of grinder and that he had bags of bloody clothing around his property along with identifications for ten different women. This is seriously, like... I probably said this before in other episodes, but this is, like, straight out of a movie, to be honest. Yeah. It's it's actually, like... It is. It's, like, theatrical. Yeah. How ridiculous ridiculously like 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 everyone's like this guy is a murderer and it, and it takes so the attempted murder happened in 1997 yeah he doesn't get arrested in in like the final arrest doesn't happen until 2002 that's 5 years it's a long time for all this these big big things they're not little things these big things to be happening um, so the tipster turned out to be a man named Bill Hiscox. His name is so funny. I'm sorry. I'm nine years old. His name is Hiscox. I didn't want to, I didn't want to say anything. I'm like, no, don't. It's, yeah. Okay. Anyway. He was passing along information, um, for a woman named Lisa Yelts who had, uh, worked with, um, picked in, in kind of that illicit fashion, um, Prior, and she was scared of coming to the police um, to tell them this information, so Bill Hiscox did it for her. In mid-1999, a woman named Lynn Ellingson was identified to police as a possible accomplice. She had told police sources that she had helped Picton pick up a sex worker, but later she found him in the barn with the same woman hanging from the ceiling, and he was skinning her. Oh, she didn't originally report it because she was afraid of Picton, and oh. he was a source of money for her, which she needed because of a drug problem. So it was kind of one of those situations where she was scared of him. Yes. And she was also scared of what the what the kind of consequences would be, be for her. If he were to go away. Even if he was caught. Yeah. So, like, not only could she, you know offend a murderer who would clearly have no problems murdering her. Yes. But even if he went away, then her source of income... Is gone. Is gone. So... It's a double-edged sword. And then in 1998, so this is actually prior um, to to uh, what this, this woman saw, um, in 1998, a friend of a woman named Audrey Huntley, who spoke to the BBC, this is how I found this story, um, went to police and told them about Picton's farm and, like, that he was murdering women and whatever. Um, but police didn't believe her because, according to them, she was, they called her a junkie hoe. Um, and Ellingson was also ignored, um, until Picton's trial due to her drug use. So they didn't even follow up with Ellingson. They didn't think it was important to kind of get this information from her because they also considered her unreliable because of her drug use. I am not a drug user, but I find it incredibly frustrating that just because someone uses a drug, whether recreational or whatever, means that they can't be truthful about anything. A lot of times the underlying cause of drug use is self-medication and people are 
dealing with the issues that they have with the only resources they have. Yeah. For indigenous people, the way that the like Canada is set up as a country and the way that their indigenous status works in Canada, like in order to not lose their status, they're not allowed to like they they don't get access to as much as us. And mm-hmm. like even like reservations you know, where they live, you know, if they have status, is, like, inadequate health care. Um, they have to, like, travel super far to get proper health care. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, a big, huge issue. A reason why a lot of Indigenous women and girls are targeted is because if something happens on the reservation... Yeah. Um... RCMP and the police don't have jurisdiction, but if it's a a non-indigenous person who did the offense, the um kind of indigenous like elders and their kind of yeah. like community and system don't have jurisdiction over yeah. the offender. So nobody punishes the offender. It's very very complicated. I have a I don't know if you met her or not. I have a friend. I think so. Yes. Uh, um, a, a friend of mine who was Ojibwe. She lived um, on a reservation her whole life up until probably two years ago when she got a, a full-time job. But, like, for those who... I'm going to talk about it later, but for those who don't know, being on a reserve, you don't get access to a lot of stuff that people have Sorry, access have to Sorry, have I been easily. saying the wrong f- terminology? What did you say before? Reservation. Well, you can say reservation or reserve. I know. She just says the most reserve. That's what she I'm says. Gonna so I'm going to go say with it. reserve then. I'm <laughs> sorry if reservation was the wrong word. Because yeah. a lot of the language that's used in these articles, especially because this is a lot of the stuff is from like 2002, 2004, a lot of the language is incorrect. And um, as much as I try to be on top of what's appropriate language and what's problematic um you know i still come from a certain amount of privilege which means that i don't always know the backgrounds to some of the words Mm. um and like i don't know the the violence attached to them always so i don't know if there's certain words that are are more Mm. violent than others in terms of context so i don't want to like just because they're used in articles doesn't mean that they're the best words. Yeah, it's not always the most appropriate ones. And, like, the resources that actually tell you which words are better get buried under a bunch of other garbage. So trying to find them is, is a little difficult sometimes. Yeah. So I tried my best. If I am being disrespectful in any way... If like, either of us are. Please... Yeah. Please say something, because I really don't want to, like, repeat it if I am saying something wrong. Yeah. We're here to learn. Okay. So, um, how we got away with it. Yeah. So, it might seem kind of like, how did the police, you know, excuse this? Um, they did have an excuse. So, their excuse for not arresting Picton earlier was that there were no bodies. Police could say that the um, women were just missing um, because of their, you know, uh, 
troubled background, um, mm-hmm. you know, drug use, drinking problems, um, sex workers, it wouldn't be unheard of for them to... Pick up and leave? Yeah, pick up and leave. You know, they don't have a lot of, you know, support systems to kind of mm-hmm. look out for them. And the support systems that they do have can't report it. Yeah. Um, because they're kind of within the same kind of marginalized spaces. So, um, they could be like, well, you don't have a body, so we don't know that anything even happened to them. Yeah. They probably just, like, ran away. Which is ridiculous when it's 65 women who don't return or ever heard of again over, like, a 30-year span. Yeah. Still a lot. Like, people do go missing, but that amount of people going missing without any trace of them whatsoever, it's a big number. It's a huge number. So that's not solved cases. That's not people who were found. That's unsolved. Like, still unsolved. 30 years later. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Anyways. Robert Picton didn't actually leave any bodies to be found. Even to this day, none of the victims' bodies have been found. This, so, this part is going to be very gross. Um, yeah. So... This involves a lot of, like, desecration of bodies and, and just grossness. Um, so you might want to skip ahead another, like, two minutes or so. Yeah, about that, because it, it's real, very intense. Um, so I mentioned that Robert Picton had a pig farm. When he would murder these women, he would dismember their bodies and then feed them to his pigs. Um, but that's not the only way he got rid of the evidence. Um, the... Um, but the DNA of 26 different women were found at the pig farm. Mm -hmm. So, like, they have evidence that he 100% fed 26 different women that they could find, like, that was still behind, like, at his farm. So not including what could have possibly happened decades earlier when people weren't looking for evidence and were kind of being like, none of these women are in danger. It's fine. Um, you know, because a lot of things happen and that DNA evidence would get lost over 30 years. So, and like, okay. All of the the DNA that was found, they could only find um, between 1995 and 2001. So, there's no evidence prior to 1995, but they did say that they were fielding tips from, like, before 95, like, at at the earliest since 1971. Yeah. So, that means that there's, like, decades of evidence that might have been lost because people weren't looking for it and weren't checking out these tips. So we we will never know. We'll never get closure on those cases unless he actually identifies them. Um, and I think he's actually still alive because I don't see. Oh yeah, the the latest information I saw was he was getting transferred, and I think it was in two thousand and eighteen. So he's still alive, which is awful. I don't believe in the death penalty, but but it's awful that he I did all this stuff. I'm upset that this person is still in existence. Because this is just, it's its not even old. Like, he was still going till 2001. Like, that's not, like, an old time where we can go, oh, we didn't know any better. Like, we clearly did in 2001. 
Yeah, a lot of things would happen between seven. What is it, seventy-seven or seventy-one? Yeah, in between then and two thousand and eighteen. Like you can't tell me that modern cops are better when all, this stuff was still happening in two thousand and one, and they had tips from nineteen seventy-one. Like they knew about this guy. He was for able a to do while. things for a long time. Um. Okay. Uh, Robert Picton would also take the dismembered bodies to a meat rendering plant. So if you don't know what a meat rendering plant is, it's a plant that takes animal byproducts of the leftover bits from slaughterhouses and stuff like that. Remember, he did have a pig farm, so it wasn't unusual for him to be like, I got pig bits. Yeah, like hot dogs and stuff. Yeah. This is where they make, like, hamburgers and hot dogs and, and that shit for human public consumption. He would go, um, according to Robert Bayers, the foreman of this meat rendering plant, he'd seen Picton drop off barrels of animal rema- of what he thought were animal remains at least five to ten times. So, I'm not saying every single one of those times was human remains. Because he did have pigs. He did have pigs. It's possible he has, you know, did take pigs to the thing and this was the only times he was seen by the foreman this doesn't also count times that he may not have been seen yeah um that's just by one particular person um suppliers of these animal byproducts aren't supposed to drop their meat directly into the pit like he was seen doing but no one would stop them if they did so it wasn't unusual for suppliers to just dump their supply into the pit instead of leaving it for the plant workers to kind of go through themselves um but i think when he had like somebody had seen the inside of the barrels before and they would just look like charred um like weird remain like it if they bits. didn't they wouldn't have been able to tell the difference and honestly like you dissect fetal pigs in high school because, because they're so close yeah to like us. if you're looking at their insides you wouldn't actually know the difference yeah so, Bayers, the foreman, remembered that Picton didn't wear gloves when, like, this is just, like, a gross thing um, that he noticed. Didn't wear gloves when handling the barrels, um, which struck him as gross and dirty because he's handling animal remains. Like, even yeah. if it's not, like, human, like, it's he still... thought it's still gross. Like, this is how comfortable he is with touching remains Flesh. in general. Like, um, human or animal, like, he... Bayers offered him gloves, and he refused. Wow, it wasn't even, like, oh, he just refused it. Yeah. Um, and he was also described as being, like, a gross and dirty-looking man in general. Mm. Like, he didn't wash and stuff. Like, I guess he was that just makes sense, then. Gross. Um, the grossest part is that a BC health officer said he couldn't rule out that human re- remains cross-contaminated the processing plant and meat products that came out of it. So between even as early as 71 maybe yeah, and you know 2001 there might have been or yeah there definitely was and the public didn't know about this till 2004 so like. That's a big deal. They would have like if they had products from that plant it would they would have already had it by then. Yeah. So it's gross. Okay. We're almost at the end. So, he did confess. In 2002, Robert Picton was detained with an undercover RCMP officer. Uh, he 
but he didn't know it was an RCMP officer, obviously. Undercover. Undercover. Yeah. <laughs> um, he thought it was another detainee, so he confessed on um, this, like, secret video camera he didn't know was there uh, that he killed, he, that he actually killed 49 women um, and that he got sloppy because he was excited to get to 50. He was like, the big five, oh, um, you can actually, there's a Washington Post article that has, um, like, a nine-minute clip yeah. of this confession. I only watched, like, a bit of it. The sound quality is really terrible. Um, and it wasn't very, n- nothing positive really came how? out of watching it. He just was very flippant about how he was, like, talking. He was like, the big five-o, they didn't even get, they don't even know the half of it, and blah, 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 blah. Very full of himself, that's what it sounds like, which most people who do that kind of stuff usually Yeah, there's a big ego thing when it comes to mass murderers um, slash serial killers. Um, It takes ego to just take someone's life. Yeah, it Um, it clearly does. multiple times. Like, to intentionally take someone's life, that takes a lot, like... To think that you have that right at all, it takes ego. Yeah. In his confession, he claimed that he killed some of the women by injecting antifreeze into their veins, which would kill them in five to ten minutes. That sounds painful and torturous. It sounds painful. It sounds awful. Because, like, if you've ever ingested something, like, you probably shouldn't have, like, medication-wise, chemical-wise. Like, it makes you feel, like... Awful. (laughs) Fucked up. Like, it's not just, like... Oh, I'm getting sleepy and then I die. No, it's like you're sweating because your body's like, what is this? Your body. I need to, to get do. rid of it. You're like vomiting. You're like, you know, there's a bunch of crap that's happening. Yeah. Um. So it's like it's not a good way to die. Um. But we also know from his attempted murder that he also used knives. Yeah. So I mean, he also handcuffed women. Um. But because there are no bodies. Yeah. We don't have evidence and proof of other ways that he actually did these murders. But if there's any, from what you've told me, from what little little I know, if there's anything we can say is that, you know, these women were killed in very awful ways. There's a good way to be killed, but it was definitely, you know, a very terrible and gruesome experience that he probably enjoyed. Not probably, he definitely enjoyed well, to do it... A lot. You know, according to himself, 49 times. Yeah. You know, you have to enjoy it. Yeah. Like, I don't think I've ever done... <laughs> enjoy the suffering of someone else and... Like, it's not... There's no imperative. It's not like like going to the bathroom or, or eating or whatever, where it's like, like, I have to do this. Like, even if you think, like, that's what the impulse to kill is like, like, I don't believe that at all. Mm-hmm. That it's, like, some insatiable urge or whatever. It's, like, no. You just got a big ego. You think it makes you powerful. Like, you play God or something. And you're probably just, like, super insecure and just need to assert some kind of, like, power over someone. Yeah. Okay. He did try to publish a book claiming his innocence. <laughs> um, it was called, like... I don't remember. I was like, I don't want to promote his book. 
It was pulled from Amazon um, a few days after, like, uh, news reports found out about it. Yeah. But Barnes & Nobles apparently kept it on their shelves for a while. Um, Probably the novelty of it all. Which was, like, super upsetting to a lot of people. Um, that's how I found out that Canada doesn't actually have um, a law preventing murderers from profiting off of um, recounting their crimes. Um, which, if you know about Eileen Warnos, which I can definitely talk about another time, um, that is something that was introduced somewhere down in the States. In at least one state, um, there is a law against murderers profiting off of, you know, memoirs, documentaries, or anything to do with um, their crimes. Like, yeah. they're not allowed to profit off their crimes. Um, yeah. All right. So, um... Uh, now, I chose to take on this case, A, because it fits this week's theme, obviously, um, but also because hopefully we'll be able to talk about how some people who are in the medical field and uh, the criminology field and all that sort of stuff um, have severely let down um, a lot of people in the past, the present, and probably will in the future, unfortunately. Um, as much as I would have liked to talk about something positive, as I said before, um, it, unfortunately this isn't a positive case, um, but the nature of this one just led me to decide to talk about it. Um, also, I'd like to say that all this information can be found on the CBC, um, amongst other websites, in case you're interested and want a more in-depth on either what I talked about or what... Mari talked about... Yeah, they have a section called Missing and Murdered, um, and it has a ton of information, including a database of the, like, 1,200 official open cases. So Um, just letting you know that, you know... There's there's lots of information. um, Because we are, like... I had to, like, cut stuff down for my case. Mm. And I had, like, I had, like, three different cases of... Almost equal gruesomeness than I could have done. Like, there's so much out there that we couldn't even touch on. Like, definitely go and and look this up yourself. All right. So, um, I chose to do, um, Della Utuva. Uh, she was one of many and unfortunately a still growing list of, uh, missing indigenous or murdered women here in Canada. Um... So I think it's safe to assume that when (laughs) white people decided to come to this country and colonize a big chunk of the world as well, that they did not care about the native peoples there. Um, And probably, scratch that, definitely didn't care um, about anyone else who would benefit from their colonization either. Facts. Um, <laughs> and it's... They're kind of irrefutable at this point. <laughs> yes. And it's sad to say, but for a lot of Canadians, the Indigenous people are just a bunch of people who were wiped out a long time ago. You know, just a picture in an elementary school textbook in your history class. Um, so it's quite shameful for for me and probably Mari that a lot of uh, both of us... At least I didn't... I, I had no idea. Not no idea, but I was like, oh... Native people are just a thing in my book. We literally, 
I thought I think we actually watched like the last of the Mohicans in like one of my classes in high school. So like it was literally taught to us that like they were wiped out and they don't exist anymore and they're an ancient people yeah. who are you know kind of akin to Aztecs and Mayans who by the way also died out <laughs> because of well, some of them, the empire yeah. thing. But then a lot of cultures were also wiped out because of yeah. colonization of South America, too. Yes. Look at that. And so there's a lot of disconnect for a lot of Canadians. Um, long-term, we're immigrant Canadians. Disconnect between us and indigenous people because for a lot of people, they don't... They're not a thing to them. They're just like a almost like a fantasy. Um, but Della Utuva was... Real and very real to the people who knew her. Um, she was 46 when the police were called to her residence in the Callowit Nunavut on June 7th, 2008. And I'm not going to assume that most of our uh, listeners know where that is, but that is very north in Canada, far away from most of the major cities. The resources, um, they, there's not a lot up there, to be honest. And it's difficult to get to. Yeah. Um, and, like, I was watching a documentary that took place in kind of, I don't know if it was none of it, but it was one of the Northern Territories. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they say that, like, there was a woman who was talking about there, she was attacked by this other woman previously. Mm-hmm. And she got attacked again because, um, she let her into the house because in kind of these Northern Territories... The the landscape is so dangerous, like, the it gets so cold there that yeah. you don't, even if these people might be trying to hurt you, you don't leave people out in the cold because they will die. And yeah. they don't, like, that's, like, you they don't care that. Yeah. if that person is, like, a bad person. It's, like, we don't leave people out to die. Yeah. Like, it's, like, that kind of, um, the North is kind of like that, like, things have to be flown in. Yeah. From, you know, like, the southern provinces. Um, and so everything is also, like, super expensive. Super inflated. Oh, my goodness. It's basically, like, even if, like, we have it imported here, like, it's basically another import fee to yeah. get it to the north. It's like if we have, I don't know, like, a dollar and some change for one apple, it's, like, $10 up there. Like, it's, it's that sort of gap between, even though we're in the same country, it's that sort of gap between how much we pay for the same product. Yeah, it's, um, it's a definitely underserved, um, part of the country. Yeah. Especially because it is, like, the the North is very predominantly indigenous. It is. Like, a lot, because that's not the kind of, like, desirable land that we wanted to steal, you know, that's yeah. where a lot of indigenous people are left. Not a lot, but... More, uh... Right, for example, here in Toronto, we put a, the minority, or like the, if you were to if you were to um, measure out the different ethnicities and races, you say like probably white, a majority. Let's say like a third of the population, mm-hmm. you know, here, and then the other half, like a quarter of that, let's say African American, another quarter of that, you know, Asian, and then somewhere in there maybe Latino and some other stuff and then very small percentage indigenous whereas there you might have like 50 50 of something yeah yeah i think that it's it's probably skewed even higher than that yeah depending on where you are up there but like 
Yeah, there's a significant indigenous population yeah. up north. Well, also their population and it's, is smaller like, even compared just to north of like metropolitan areas. Yeah, because like we really developed and colonized the like the southern, southern provinces border and, between us and yeah. the states. Um. Anyway, sorry. So she was found lying on the floor when the police arrived. Um, her husband Amos was originally charged for murdering murdering her upon finding her. So they immediately it kind of reminds me of a staircase. They immediately came in. They're like, "Oh, the husband did it," you know, as per usual. Um, but the initial toxicology report said she had a lethal amount of alcohol in her. Now remember that. Keep that in your mind because it's going to be important later. Um, also, Della's sister had said that um, Della's husband was questionable and that he had a criminal past. So she was encouraging the police that this is your suspect, like, this, she's, she's dead because of him. Um, so now we're here, things take a turn. It took a year for there to be um, a final coroner's report. So a whole year. Typically, it's not supposed to take that long, but... As I no, said. like you should have like you can't really proceed with an investigation without a full autopsy report. Yeah, like a week is kind of long in this situation, and especially how bodies change over time post mortem. You shouldn't be delaying that for a very very long time. Yeah, because you also can't even go back and recheck, you know, iffy parts of the report because you know, the body would have changed so much in that time. Even if, it, like, you checked everything right at the start and yeah. it just took that year to go through everything. Yeah. Like, when you go back, nothing's going to be the same. You know, the body's going to not be in great condition. It'll be, like, you'd have to embalm it, which would destroy evidence anyways. Yeah. So it's just, it's it's not good practice. Um, in that time, Amos, 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 gosh, what a name, uh, Della's husband was found dead. Um, it was reported that his common-law spouse was convicted with manslaughter for his death. Wait. His common-law spouse killed him. So... In, in, in between so, her dying and the final coroner's report... He got a common-law spouse? Yes. I mean, I don't even think technically they could be common-law at that that's point. What it, that's what it was called. But either way, his partner... I guess just live in live-in partner, whoever, had um, killed him. And this was four months before Della's final and official coroner report. So it wasn't even a full year? No. Before he was found dead. So, and then it took another four months for them to do the report? Like, the the guy beat, well, didn't rush that a little bit? Like, no. oh, did we? Which it's, it's weird, because they were like, they came to the house. They see her. They're like, husband did it. And then nothing happened. The courts are like, they stayed the trial. They're like, it's what, it, they're like, nah, it's fine. And then. <laughs> all of this, all of this is pissing me off. Okay. Yeah. Hold on. I need to, to yeah. go through this for a second. So they basically went in. We're like, the husband did it. Yeah. And we're so assured of this that we're basically not going to actually investigate for an entire year. Basically. They're just like, oh, she had all this alcohol on her. It's, she died. And and then they were like, oh, we're not going to. And we'll just stay the trial because he's dead, I guess. Because we didn't care about it for eight 
months prior. I don't... And all of this is bad. Um, so this was... Shit gets worse. I'm sorry. I cussed. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I started off the episode being like, fuck it. Maybe. Um, so the final coroner's report, so a year um, post-mortem, uh, showed significantly less eth- ethanol in her blood than initially stated. It was nowhere near a lethal amount in her body. Where did they get the... So if they... Okay, so this information, this lethal amount, didn't come from the coroner's final mm. report. No. Where did they get this information? It was, like, an initial, like, autopsy or whatever. Was it like, kind of, like, one of those, oh, like, she had blue around her lips, so we know, and my, like... There's not super, super detail this about this, and that's why the family is so pissed about this whole case. Which, so right, right. They just assumed it was alcohol poisoning. Yeah, they're like, oh, she has all this alcohol. Before they even did the toxicology? The initial toxicology showed that she had high levels of alcohol. I'm the, so I'm thinking it's, a, it it's malpractice. Make, yeah, because like, like, it doesn't make sense to me. If you are doing your job correctly, these things shouldn't happen. Yeah. You actually have to be doing your job badly for There's this to happen. More. Oh, great. So after the final coroner's report was like, alcohol definitely was not the cause. He also, or I don't know if he, but they also said there were bite marks found on her arms... And blunt force trauma, um, bruises to her torso, face, arms, and legs. Okay, that's not something that you miss on an initial... Which is wild! Like, that's... Okay. (laughs) I... Think about this. She died. She died, and they're just like, oh... How do they have an initial toxicology report, but not like, mmm, there are bruises everywhere? mind-boggling and her family had been like it wasn't alcohol they're like her husband killed her like Like, this it's it's not alcohol like they didn't even look at her body is basically what they're saying like like what did they do just like what negligence it's negligence they literally had to be like like, to me, it makes it seem like maybe they didn't even have an initial toxicology report they just just made an assumption it's it with how awful it is. I I couldn't say you were wrong. Although to be on doing research for this, like showed me how many reporters will just like assume the police and you know all the investigators yeah. and people working on these cases know what they're doing. Which like, is once again a staircase thing. Yeah, like I would be like reading reports from some pe- like some reporters yeah. who would be like. And the police did everything they could. And then it would, like, another one would be like, okay, they missed this and this yeah. and this. And, like, they leave out so much or they don't question, you know. They'll be like, oh, but the police said they did this, so I trust them. And it's like, oh, but they didn't actually do that thing. That's a lie. Like, the toxic, the toxicology thing is, I guess, kind of a believable mistake. But, like, missing... Bruising me, and bite marks see on her how... body is like that. That's that's blatant. Like I have, I have eyeballs. I'm assuming if you're working um, in a in a setting where you have to examine bodies, you also have eyeballs and can see what you're doing. And to not see bite marks or any sort of like skin being broken or bruising on the body. Yeah, and isn't part of, like, your your inquest to do, like, 
an x-ray and stuff when you're doing an autopsy if you're not like literally opening them up like i don't know it's very infuriating there's Um, just but you know what there aren't actually any regulations especially in canada there are no real regulations on um coroners or medical examiners yeah like province to province i looked this up because i wanted to know if i could become one in ontario it's more difficult um because you do actually need your medical degree. But in other provinces, you could literally just, like, take a, like, a college program mm-hmm. and become a coroner. So, like, it's, there's no regulations to kind of criminal investigations. Yeah. In autopsies or, like, basically in, in like, the, like, law investigation. And there's more. Um, so... After the uh, final coroner's report, um, it was also said that uh, Della had an undiagnosed heart condition called, and I'm probably going to mess this up because I'm not very good at English, but atherosclerotic coronary artery disease. Artery disease. My goodness. So essentially what it means is that... um, the disease limits the blood flow to the heart. Um, any sort of serious stress and activity or, or emotional or physical can predispose an individual. So not knowing you have that disease, like basically anything extreme could could cause you to go into shock. So they said she was basically scared to death on top of the trauma her body experienced. Like the sheer fear of... What was happening. What was happening to her killed her. That has been... I've always wondered if that was a possibility because mm. like to me when i think about if i was in these situations with so much violence yeah like i can't imagine i i i know myself and that would terrify me to the point where i would not be able to function yeah and it's always made me wonder like could could i just like be scared to death to the point where i i don't actually have to like live through the rest of the attack like, yeah. to, like for someone to actually kill me it because like it's just so, so much. traumatized yeah so she was basically scared to death which is like honestly people will joke about it because it's a common phrase like I was scared to death but like it was a reality for her and it, it, it couldn't have been avoided but she at least could have known about her heart condition you know which is unfortunate and her family, rightfully so, was very upset. A, it took over a year to get a report and that they didn't do anything about her husband and they can't get justice because he died over, like, in between that year, between her death and the final coroner's report, which is very tragic. And that, unfortunately, is all there is on Della because it wasn't... A super big case. No, it wouldn't have gotten a ton of media no. attention. And that's the whole point, is that these cases didn't get media attention. Like, the Highway of Tears wasn't really kind of referred to as the Highway of Tears until after a white woman went missing. Um, you know? One of these... Because multiple, multiple serial killers yep. have been arrested... From, you know, these cases, that doesn't cover the the uh, the forty other unsolved cases. Like the ones that were solved by these like serial killers, there's still forty 
ones that are still unsolved. Meaning that there were at least three serial killers active. Yeah. There could have been more. And the reason why there was a concentration there was, like, a lot... There was serial killers that came up from the States. Like, there was truckers that would drive through. Like It's really easy. It's one of those highways that goes across a huge chunk of British Columbia. I think it goes, like, right across. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's a very used highway. So, like, people drive along it all the time and nobody questions anything. And bodies are just found, you know, off the roads, in, like, the woods. Um, I think, actually, the Highway of Tears was expanded to include some, like roads uh, connected to that stretch of Highway 16 because um, there was bodies found all of there mm-hmm. as well. And if you expand it to, like, all of British Columbia and all of Canada and stuff like that, like, it happens all the time everywhere. It's not just that stretch of highway. Oh, no. There just is a huge indigenous population around that stretch of highway. So people know that they can get away with it because people aren't going to investigate it properly. It's not, it, it's really unfortunate and, like, I'm ashamed that we're not doing much more. And yes, sometimes, not sometimes, a lot of times we rag on the United States for, you know, this and that and the fourth, but, like, We're just as bad. Yes. We're just more secretive about it, but I mean, as time goes on and we have more access to information, Canada can't hide their sins forever it's coming to light more and more every day yeah and it's because there are more and more voices that are like being allowed to like speak um and that actually brings me to another thing i wanted to Mm -hmm. add before we ended off um i didn't want this to be you know a total just like depressing thing for people i didn't want something Positive. I did want to feel like we were adding something positive to this conversation. And the only way I could think to do that is um, by talking about all of the people who have done a ton of research, a ton of work on, on talking about these issues, who have way better insights, way better, you know, research, way, just way better everything. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the... the you know, research, um, and stuff that I did was based off of some of these things as well. So, um, in terms of, um, there's a book called Seven Fallen Feathers by Tanya Talaga, who is an indigenous woman, um, and that's about seven teenagers, indigenous teenagers, who were killed in Thunder Bay and, um, kind of the investigations that took on that or the lack of investigations and um all of that um there's also the missing and murdered podcast um done by cbc um and it's produced by an indigenous woman i think she's cree um but if you look up missing and murdered um it's a cbc podcast um it's got two seasons. The first season is on who killed Alberta Williams, and the second season is on finding Cleo. And Cleo is a young indigenous girl, very girl, small girl, young, I mean, um, 
who went missing and was never found. Um, both of these cases are still unsolved, um, but she goes to these, the, um, like, where these cases happen, and she tries to, to find answers herself. Um, I listened to the first season. It was super well-produced. She's such a great reporter. Mm-hmm. Amazing interviews. You know, very thorough, just amazing work. Like, I, I, I didn't, I didn't touch the cases that she did because, like, she does a way, way better job than I ever could. And, like, I didn't want to be like, let me talk about, like, no, just listen to her mm-hmm. <laughs> tell the stories. It's just way better. Um, there's also Finding Dawn, which is a documentary. Uh why didn't I write down? Okay, I wrote down all of the names of things, like, after I'd closed maybe all we'll of my tabs. include them in the notes, maybe? Yeah, I'm going to try and include them in the notes. Um, but Finding Dawn is um, a documentary on the Highway of Tears created by an indigenous documentary maker. Um, there is a uh, Highway of Tears documentary on Netflix, um, but I don't think it was produced or directed by an indigenous person. I know Nathan Fillion does the, like, narration, so... But I mean... I don't want to say, like, it's a super good resource, but I do know that they they tackle some of the issues from Finding Dawn, which um, was a much earlier documentary. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's good to kind of follow up um, to get a little bit more newer information, because Finding Dawn was from 2006, I think, and the Highway of Tears documentary was from 2011, I think. Or it might have even been sooner. Or more recent, I mean. Um, but yeah. And another book I found um, that kind of mentioned uh, Robert Picton was Just Another Indian, A Serial Killer, and Canada's Indifference. Although I think they also talk... Uh, that one was more about a different serial killer. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's actually just, like, a ton of books written by Indigenous people on these issues. Um, a lot of Indigenous women talking about it. Um, you can actually read... So the National Inquiry for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women um, has released an interim report um, on their inquiry so far. They've had a six-month extension, so they're going to have a full report at the end of this year um, and going into 2017. Or, what year am I in? 2019. <laughs> um, at the, you know, towards early 2019, uh, the full report should be out. Um, a lot of people are upset that they only got a six-month extension because if um, the commissioners of the report are saying that it's it's being rushed, basically, or not the, yeah, the people doing the report, not the people commissioning the report, feel like it's making them rush through these hearings, um, and um, investigations rather than giving it the time that they need. But there's also a lot of controversy because they're taking a really long time with it as it is. And, you know, like, this issue needed to be dealt with, like, 30 years ago. Forever ago. And so, for a lot of people, it just feels, like, too slow or too long of a wait. So. Which is understandable. Yeah. Um, but I don't know 
what this report is really gonna do, to be honest. Um, hopefully, it will change our justice system, but, like, we'd literally have to do a, an overhaul. Like, we have to scrap everything we know about law enforcement, investigations, everything, in order to fix these mistakes. Mm-hmm. Because, like, we have to remember, these systems were built to, to get away with these things. Like, these colonial, like, police, the idea of police came out of controlling slaves. Yeah. Like, we have to remember that. Like, cops have never been about protecting. They've been about controlling and and overpowering. So. I don't really know what to add to that because, I mean... You're we not wrong. And like agree on this point for the most yeah. part. Yeah. And like it in an ideal world, you know, cops would be the people that you go to when you are in legit trouble and need of aid and will do their gosh darn hardest to be able to help you and follow rules that are fair for everyone. But right now that's not how it is. Yeah. And it's never been that way. Like, we can try and say, like, oh, this is a system that's been corrupted, but it was corrupt from the start. Yeah. And, like, I have so many feelings on this. You're gonna, you're all, two weeks, you're gonna hear more about it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like. We hope that you. Learned something. Yeah. And we hope that you, you help to. To lift up the indigenous voices who are talking about yeah. this. And we're not just talking about... Because I know we are Canadian, but that's not where indigenous people stop. It's here. It's in America. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, actually, like, you know, we come from the Caribbean, and we don't talk about indigenous people to that area. Mm. You know, a lot of times it's assumed that there wasn't people there, but that's not... The, the case. They yeah. actually, because indigenous people didn't want to work in the capitalist system that the colonial system was working through, and they didn't want to be enslaved, like, <laughs> um, they were wiped out so that they could access that land anyways. Yeah. Um, so. We hope that you will, with this, with this episode, that you'll think not only of the indigenous peoples here but all over that have been affected by colonialism, um, oppression, you know, have received unfair treatment when they're told that they're citizens of this, of their countries like everyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, we hope that, you know, that things will change and they'll be heard. That's all we can do is hope. Um, and we, we want to just make sure that people know that just because Justin Trudeau says he's all for reconciliation and that he cares about indigenous people. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that the government's always felt that way. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that he means what he says. I mean, look at the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Well, also, because, like, the government isn't just one person. And we... Justin Trudeau is not perfect. I'll be the first to admit, admit it. But, like, it's not just him who runs the government. Mm-hmm. And, and there are many, many people who probably, whether he wants to do more or not, 
who probably don't agree with him. And not just people in the government, just people in the world yeah, well, in general. Yeah, because, I mean, our government isn't actually representative of a lot of our communities. No. It's very representative of one specific type of community throughout yeah. Canada. And as much as we want to say that, like, things are changing and that there's more representation and all of that stuff, that's not... Really the case. Yeah. As, as far as I can tell, anyway. Thing, it, things are improving, but it's not as quickly or as drastic as... It as, should be yeah. at this point. Um, so, yeah. Anyways. Any, um, anything else to add? I guess um, just remember to hold space for Indigenous people. To remember that they're not making up the issues that they're talking about. They're not overreacting. They're not just, you know, fighting against systems to fight against systems. Mm-hmm. There's a real issue here, and... Um, they need to be heard. They need to be heard, and they need to be put in positions to change it. Like, we, as settlers on this land, cannot change it for them. They have to be the ones who get to, to make those decisions and make those calls, because... It's about them. Yeah, like, we're... Like, we probably fucked something up in this episode. Probably. Because, you proud know, of it, like, but... it's not our stories, yeah. and we want to make sure that that's very clear. Like, this isn't our story. This isn't anything that we, you know, we can really do anything about because, like, the, this is... It's not about us. Yeah. And, like, it shouldn't be. No. So, Last... oh, I guess I forgot to mention that the reason that we're doing this episode oh, now Oh, yes, most is... importantly. <laughs> we're actually doing this because uh, this weekend is Canada Day. Yes. Um, but for us, it's not really a day to celebrate. Um, we, we did want to hold space for Indigenous people this weekend because, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't want to be sitting here enjoying fireworks and, and, you know, celebrating and going, Happy Canada Day, when... You know, this is the reality Indigenous people face every day. Yeah. And have been facing for, like, hundreds of years now. Like... Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, um, that's why we chose this this episode to do it. Yes. It seemed most appropriate now, and hope you guys learned something, and look forward to hearing from us again in our our next episode. Um, As always... You can reach us on our social media. Yeah, um, at Six Ad World SSW on Twitter. I do all of the tweets. All of the opinions are mine. I get very <laughs> opinionated on there. Yep. Um, <laughs> I don't want to get Jasmine in trouble over opinions she did at Express. <laughs> um, and you can reach me on Instagram at Six Sad World. I'm going to be the best Instagrammer. You guys are going to love me. Just you wait and see. I'll Instagram the shit out of our podcast Instagram. Yes. We're we're also still learning how to use social media because we were those like grumpy kids in high school who were like, I don't need to be hip and jab with the yeah. social media and then now we're ten like, years later we're like, ah oh, crap. Yeah. These were valuable skills. I'm like an eighty year old person who hasn't like decided not to like keep up with technology and like how things have changed and now I'm trying to catch up. But like that's my goal for twenty eighteen. You're never too old to learn, so that's what I'm going to do. You're a young person. That's like... <laughs> I know. That, guys, I'm a not... A weird re- thing to say. You're <laughs> but, never... But, t- at 25, <laughs> not even. But still, you, 
Mari is ragging on me about it, but we're always talking about how old we are. We're like, oh my god, we're gonna be closer to thirty than we are twenty. Like, <laughs> so don't don't you don't you come at me with that. I mean, to be fair, when we stand up, we both go, <laughs> my bones. <laughs> so yes, we're very young people, but we want to. Um, Make sure you guys know that we have these social media outlets where you guys can reach us and get a little more personal. or and see, talk to us. Talk to us. Get more content outside of just our lovely, lovely voices through our podcast and, you know, see what's coming up, any sort of fun things or cool things we'll be doing, any sort of information or news and any ideas, you know, just keep, just keep up with us, you know? And let us know if we're not talking about things we should talk about. Yeah. Like... It's your way to communicate with us besides, like, trying to email us, which is basically snail mail at this point. Yeah. <laughs> I do take, like, a week to reply to my... But you can email us. You can, if that's your vibe. Pod, at gmail.com. Um, I do check it, like, every day, except for sometimes when I've been working, and then I come home and I nap for, like, six hours, and then I watch Netflix for another six hours. <laughs> The point is, that is also an option. We don't want you to be afraid of, if you don't have Twitter or Instagram, there is an email option. So, yeah. And I believe that is it. So, don't be a murderer. And we'll see you guys in the next episode.